Please join with me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this time of year where we can just launch right in to doing life together as your people. And as we walk through this series, and today we focus on the main thing, we pray, Lord, that you would take our minds and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. While we have many newer people to the Christ Church family over the past 11 years, I, I hope and I trust those of you who have been with me since 2007 have learned the lesson by now that the church is not a building. Um, the church, as Kim correctly stated in her Realm post on um, Wednesday, it's a people that God has called together, made alive by faith. And so after 11 years of walking together, knowing the Lord, striving to grow in the Lord, serving our community together, I thought this spring as I observed how COVID has affected not Christchurch, although it has affected us, the church at large, that it would be a good series for this fall to rediscover what it means to be a 21st century Christian as part of the church. The series will not be about the activities the church does, the gathering, preaching, communion, baptism, discipleship, Bible study, serving the poor, counseling, church discipline, those are essential marks of the church and ought not to be ignored, but this series is more about who God's people are, recognizing that activity flows from an identity. We're good news people, a believing family, community of missionaries, servants, learners, and worshipers. And so I pray and I trust that this series will bless you immensely. It will exhort some, comfort many. And I know as we walk in this common understanding based on the word of God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. Because if you went on the street and you videotaped people, what's a Christian? What does it mean to be a part of the church? You would get a plethora of answers. So what we're going to do today is, rather than an exposition, we're going to look at some of the narratives of the world that are very, very popular, and I know that because I've heard them. And then we're going to look at God saying who He is and how we can rejoice as God's people under that truth. So I encourage you to open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at that verse here in a little bit. But first, let's look at what the world says about Jesus Christ. What, what, what is the most common narratives that the world says? You, you hear these if you go to Jake's. You'll hear these if you go to the golf course. You'll hear this everywhere nuanced. Now, these aren't the only things, but these are kind of the main things that you hear on the Discovery Channel every Christmas and Easter, all right? First, narrative. 
Did you know Jesus was married? Perhaps there's no conspiracy theory more prevalent, more sensational and captivating than the one that believes Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and had kids. It's not only fodder for books like the Da Vinci Code, it seems to pop up again and again every Christmas and Easter. There is no manuscript evidence whatsoever for that, brothers and sisters. It doesn't exist. This is claim is patently false. Second narrative which you will hear about. A widespread conviction that Jesus was merely an ordinary human being and it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in 325 that the church deified him, made him God, and then anybody who disagreed with him, they suppressed and oppressed all the way up till today. Well, the reality and the evidence for the first 200 years of the early church believing in the divinity of Jesus, quite frankly, is overwhelming. 1 Corinthians was written approximately 50 A.D., that's 17 years approximately after Jesus died and rose again. Paul writes these words. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom all we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. 17 years after Jesus rose. There's good evidence that Paul is drawing on the monotheistic creed of Israel and attributing deity to Jesus Christ, indicating that such belief was present at the, at the early church gospel movement. No, for 200 years before Nicaea, Jesus is God. Church always has believed that. Third, Another narrative which the world spouts out. You know, there wasn't a Bible until the 4th century, really. Constantine was the Roman emperor, and he wanted to keep everybody under his foot, so he decided what books were in it. Told to me over a Dortmunder at Jake's. And I asked, well, what evidence do you have for that? Well, everybody knows that. No, really, what evidence do you have of that? It's an often repeated claim, you know, that the early church depended on oral tradition, quote-unquote. And this problem wasn't resolved until Constantine. Well, it is a yet another intriguing conspiracy theory, but it lacks any historical foundation. The earliest Christians had the Bible from day one. You know what it was called and what it's called today? The Old Testament. They believe the early church fully held that the Old Testament is the word of God and deeply committed to its authority. Moreover, from the early point, Christians regarded their own books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pauline epistles, the pastoral epistles, the book of Revelation, as scripture. They held it up as such all the way into the mid-second century. Fourth, the Gnostic Gospels, you'll hear that word, Gnosis, means knowing, believes. Gnosticism was a belief that spirit is good, matter is bad. And so these books kind of reflect that theology. And the Gospel of Thomas is the most 
popular one they trout out and they say, you know, that should have been included in the Bible, along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were, it was just as popular. Well, if you look at the historical evidence of that claim, that story evaporates. How frequent Thomas was cited in the other Gnostic Gospels. How frequently it was cited by other texts. How frequently it was cited as scripture. The number of manuscripts. It is clear that Thomas and the other gospel, Gnostic Gospels weren't popular because they were inconsistent with the earlier and frequently cited Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. Matthew and John, written by the apostles, Matthew and John. Mark, written by Peter's assistant. And Luke, who had a patron named Theophilus, was Paul's companion, who went on a research project and wrote his gospel in the book of Acts. No, the early Christians always held that the gospels, the Pauline letters, the pastoral epistles, the Revelation, book of Revelation, were always held as scripture. Last narrative which you might hear. You know, we really can't know what the New Testament says because it's all been edited it's all been corrupted. We can't know what the original authors really meant. Well, there really is no evidence for such radical corruption. Can we see scribal changes? Can we see mistakes in New Testament manuscripts? Of course. That's true for every document of ancient antiquity. Yet, if there's a difference, it's the New Testament seems even more preserved than comparable documents of ancient world. So after generations of careful scholarship and a wealth of manuscripts at our disposal, we can have great confidence in the content of the New Testament, brothers and sisters. All right? That's the first thing. So who is God and what is he, what is he like? is a natural question. And what's our focus as Christ Church West Shore? And if we were to ask one another, what are the most startlingly, startlingly wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, I think it would be hard to compare to Jesus' words in Matthew 11. When Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus describes himself. Those words, gentle and lowly, I think are worth a lifetime of pondering when you really think about them. Think about what these words, what Jesus is saying. He starts off in the first person. I am gentle and lowly. Not what his disciples are saying. Not what a personality test is saying. Not what some scholar is saying. This is Jesus' own claim about who he is, his own words. He doesn't say, I, I was like this at one time, but now I've cooled off to you. He doesn't say, 
I might be like this one day when you get your act together. No, he says, I am gentle and lowly. Thomas Goodwin, that great 17th century Puritan theologian, had this great burden to convince his readers that while God is holy, just, righteous, high and lifted up, doesn't mean that he's any more distant from us now here on earth. As a matter of fact, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's closer to us than the disciples were to him. Therefore, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is not a past reality, but a present reality. This is who God is to us. It's not who he may, may be one day. This is who he is. And he says, I am gentle. Isn't that just a wonderful adjective? Aren't you glad? This is the first word to describe himself to us. Jesus is saying, I am the most tender, non-abrasive, non-manipulative being you will ever come across. And he says he's lowly. And to drive that point of gentleness home, it's an overlapping yet a distinct word that he's using. He is the most accessible, most approachable person in the universe. You don't have to get through security to get to Jesus. You don't have to get a ticket and get in line for Jesus to hear you. You don't, you don't, you will never be put on hold by Jesus Christ. As glorious as he is, this wonderful revelation of him, the God who is ineffable, magnificent, resplendently divine, is gentle and accessible to us. And he says, He's gentle and lowly in heart. This is what gets him out of bed in the morning. This, this is the deepest, innermost core of who he is. In the Bible, the heart is not merely just feelings of warmth. It's not less than our emotions, but the heart is the innermost core of why we do what we do. And when Jesus comes and tells us what his heart is, that he is gentle and lowly, that's who he is now. That's good news. Now, some might object and say, well, Gene, you're just proof texting. This is just one verse in the entire Bible that's describing everything out of the Gospels. Well, that would be a valid objection if everything else that we saw in Jesus was Jesus walking around like some aloof seminary professor dispensing wisdom dispassionately or a celebrity megachurch pastor who's being whisked away to the green room where you can have access to him there or a politician that you have to go through layers of security to have access to. No. Well, we see on every page of Matthew Mark, Luke, and John is exactly what's taught from Jesus' lips here in Matthew 11. And what we see is Jesus irresistibly drawn to our mess. Irresistibly drawn to our sin. 
our suffering, our pain and anguish. He opens himself up to us. And that's the exact opposite. We run from that, don't we? We're repelled by it. God is the exact opposite. And so as we walk through this series this fall, I want us to keep this in the forefront of our minds. This is who God is. And be astonished with me. We're the cold, calculating ones. Jesus is not. For he is high and lifted up. Paul writes in Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That God gentle and lowly in heart to you and me. When we see that, perhaps for the first time, and recognize our natural rebellion and that Jesus did come to lay down his life for each and every one of us gathered here, whether it be in person or online, to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, and we understand that. He's an amazing Lord. His wisdom, his compassion, his power, his foreknowledge, his fearlessness, his gentle and lowly words to us, recognizing that this is the God who's redeemed us. He is the propitiation. He is our justification. We are reconciled are the, all the supreme acts of love for us. And the goal of that love that make those acts loving is that we are with him now and into eternity. And that is jaw-dropping glory. I'm astounded. I hope you are too. And when we take a few minutes and, and really just set our eyes on Jesus this way, we forget ourselves. <laughs> and we see him and we savor all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Who's gentle and lowly. And all that's required to experience and embrace Jesus Christ in this way is to collapse in his arms and anyone can do that. You children of the 70s, you remember beanbag chairs? Yeah, okay, all right. I had a, a good buddy down the street from me whose father was a neurosurgeon, and they had every new gimmick. And so they had a beanbag chair that could fit three boys, you know? So we'd go over to Eddie's house to watch the University of Maryland play football, you know? Drink Pepsi. You have three little boys in a beanbag chair drinking Pepsi. Just imagine this, okay? And we did it all at one time. One, two, three. We collapsed into the beanbag chair. And it was just like, wow, that's kind of neat. That's what it's like to entrust all your life to Jesus, all right? When we say believe... That's what we're doing. We're, we're intellectually believing, yes, but it's more than that. It's surrendering every aspect of my life unto him and just collapsing into these loving arms 
entrusting ourselves to him. And as we do that, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, there's not one day you go back to him and say, oh, Lord, I entrust myself to you again, surrendering my life to you. Because it's not the quality of your faith, it's the object of your faith. This God has revealed himself, and he's holy and gentle and lowly. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you didn't hide yourself into some, we have to discover some kind of secret code that we have to decipher to know you and to follow you. You were out in the open for all the world to see. And you proclaim that your kingdom is here and now, and it has been and will be forever. We're grateful for that. And so, Lord, we, we come to you and we fall into your arms like a big, huge beanbag chair and entrust all of our lives to you. We confess that we, we are rebels and we, we all want to do it our way. And yet, Lord, we, we surrender to you to do it as you wish. Fill us, Holy Spirit, especially those of us who perhaps for the first time have, have realized this is who God is. And we ask, Lord, that you would do a good work in us as we walk into this new program year together as Christ Church West Shore. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.